0: We don't have to do this.
1: After all we've been through, everything I've done, it can't be for nothing.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm Christian Spicer, host of the official The Last of Us podcast. Now that season one of HBO's The Last of Us is officially wrapped, which If you haven't finished watching, please pause this podcast and go do so because this episode is spoiler heavy. Also, it's just an incredible show that the entire world is obsessed with, so give yourself that gift already. But as I was saying, with season one now officially released, I got to sit down again with my friend Neil Druckmann, The Last of Us video game creative director and writer, as well as HBO showrunner, writer, and director to talk about the entire season and how this show has taken over the world. Also, if you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe and listen to HBO's The Last of Us podcast hosted by Troy Baker with showrunners Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann where they discuss each and every episode of HBO's The Last of Us. Okay. Let's get into this. I'd love to start with, how are you feeling now that the show's out in the world? When we talked before, it hadn't been, and now people have consumed it. How are you doing? <laughs> I don't know
0: how to describe this feeling because it's very strange.
2: It's called joy, um, Neil. Uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know how to feel that feeling. <laughs> um, I, I really get anxious with success. I, I don't know what it is. But again, to describe how strange it is. I was at a wedding this weekend. And normally when I go to like a setting like that, where most people are not gamers, and they ask me, what do you do? And I say, oh, I make video games. I'm Like, oh, what, what game? Would I know it? Is it Madden? Is it GTA? I'm like, no, it's not, none of those. Have you heard of the game The Last of Us? No, not really. Have you heard of Uncharted? No, not really. Jack and Daxter? No, not really. I have to go to Crash Bandicoot. And one out of 10, I'll get like, yeah, I heard of Crash Bandicoot. I'm like, okay, well, I work for the company that made that game. Um, This weekend, when I went to the wedding, everybody heard of The Last of Us. Every single person. Half of the people already saw it. The other half heard about it and were interested in seeing it. But it was just wild for it to be like in the zeitgeist in this way that, you know, it felt like... Even though the game, you know, sold millions of units, it always felt like it was this little circle of people that know about it. And now everybody's talking about it. I'm seeing, like, Stephen King and Jeff Bezos
2: tweeting about it. It's just very strange. We talked last time about... There was a moment in this show when you all were making it um, where you sat back and watched it. And I I think you said something like... um, you you looked over at, at Craig. I I think you said you were talking to Craig, and, and you said, We did it. Right. And you talked about how that wasn't coming from a place of ego, of like, um, this is gonna be the best thing ever, but a show that you were making that you would be proud of.
0: Yeah, the the moment in question is the reason why I wanted to make the game in the first place was this examination of these two characters of Joel and Ellie and on the surface the way games like this would normally play is you would play Joel through their whole experience and protect this person that you're with but part of the story that we had was this flip that happens much pretty deep into it where Joel gets incapacitated so badly and then you get control of Ellie uh, and then this magical thing that happens it's just in video games where people when play it they say oh my god I am Ellie and then there's this back and forth that's happening of, as these two characters are separate for so long and you've you've been accustomed to seeing them together. And, you know, how you have Ellie going up against David, this cannibal leader of, of, of this um, religious group. You find out dark motivations that he has or some um, ideas he has for what he would like out of, from Ellie.
1: You're going to chop me up into little pieces.
0: And it's structured in a way where you believe Joel's gonna burst through that door and save Ellie. And he doesn't make it in time. She has to save herself. You little cunt.
1: Let's see what I go tell the others now. Ellie. What? Tell them that Ellie is a little girl who broke her fucking finger.
0: And then they do reconnect. And I, I guess he saves her more emotionally than physically. So it just takes a lot of these tropes and kind of flips them on their head. And I was always very excited to get to this point. And I'm like, I I knew that if we landed this part of the game, that means that everything else fell into place because this part would not work unless you felt all these other setups of the relationship and how much these characters care for each other. That's the part that I was really nervous, the most nervous for the show. Is that going to come together? Will it have the same feeling or because it's not interactive or just we didn't pull... Other parts of as well, it's not going to hit as hard. That was my fear of like, and that would mean it's a lesser adaptation. So that's the part where I finally like watched a few episodes in a row, getting into that moment. And I I like that there's something that's just a little bit different from the game where like uh, uh, Ellie kills David and the fact that it's live action and just Bella's performance and everything that's happening there, it's, it's somehow more brutal than the game. It's harder to watch than the game. So then you expect Joel to, grab again, if you're familiar with the material, you expect Joel to be there and he's not there yet. And then she stumbles out into the snow and just the contrast of the colors there and seeing her speckled in blood. And then Joel shows up and the way that Bella looks at Pedro and Pedro looks at Bella, it feels so authentic that these two care so much about each other. And you feel the trauma that she went through and the pain that Joel uh, is experiencing because he couldn't protect her from this.
1: Look, it's me. It's me. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay, baby girl. I got you. I got you.
0: And man, that part hit me so hard. I was just bawling. For all the reasons we talked about in the in the last episode, which was like it was just beautiful on its own, but there was this extra layer of it really honored this thing that, you know, we've created a naughty dog all those years ago. Um, that yeah, that's the that's the moment I picked up the phone and texted Craig and was like, we did it. That this this show works and works beautifully.
2: As I was watching uh the season, I kept I had that thought in my mind and I kept guessing at what the moment was. I was like, oh. It's when Frank puts his hand on Bill's shoulder. That's it. That's something new to the. Oh, nope. Okay. Yeah. It's when Ashley gives the knife. Okay. That's it. Cause that's, they've broadened this character. Okay. That's definitely, okay. Yeah. No, it's definitely at the end. And I kept like running these moments in my head, trying to pinpoint. Cause all, there were so many moments in the show that jumped out at me as both meaningful and significant for both the weight they carried as an adaptation, but also the way that you all were able to expand on the story by telling it as a a TV show. For example, Bill and Frank and the idea of, you can spend time away from your core protagonist now, and we can tell this story that perhaps wasn't possible before. Or even the moments of Henry and Sam alone, where Joel and Ellie don't need to be on screen to see them Yeah,
0: those were developing those moments was the most fun I personally had working on this project, because um, if the whole thing was an exact retelling, you wouldn't need me for anything. (laughs) You just grab the old scripts and just do that. But as I've said before, I think that would make for poor television with maybe some punctuated, interesting moment. But as a whole, um, I, I don't think that would work. And so one of the conversations we had for the Bill and Frank stuff is like, in the game, the Bill section was a cautionary tale for Joel of like, here's what you stand to lose. And it's like, it's a version of like, oh, well, you can kind of just go crazy and be lonely. And it's like, what are you surviving for at, th- at that point? But what we realized is like, we actually have quite a few of those <laughs> throughout the story of like cautionary tales of, of things not working out for people. We we're like, well, why don't we change the story and show what, what do you stand to win? And in a way, it raises the stakes for Joel and Ellie because it shows that if all roads just lead to damnation, then it's like, none of it matters. But if there is a chance of happiness, and that's where like the Bill and Frank stuff is to show them there is a way out.
1: I'm not gonna give you the every day was a wonderful gift from God speech. I have had a lot of bad days. I've had bad days with you too, but I've had more good days with you than with anyone else. Just give me one more good day.
0: Starting now, make me some toast. <laughs> Obviously, the, the Bill and Frank was a joy. That was Craig's baby in, in many ways. I, um, I love that pitch, and then I love the script even more when he, when he sent it to me. I, I just liked having a deeper dive, a deeper understanding of these characters that I've lived with for so many years, so just to connect Henry and Sam to the quarantine zone and get more specific about the relationship and how they're connected to Edelstein and uh, Melanie Linsky's character, I just felt it made the world that much richer and that much kind of more interesting in its complexity and move this away f- further away in the way that Last of Us Part 2 does to say, it's not about good guys and bad guys. It's just about people that have conflicting interests. And sometimes the only way they know how to resolve it is with violence. I've consumed a lot of feedback of the show and I like reading both positive and negative things, and criticisms. Episode three is mostly universally loved and people talk about how much they were bawling while watching that episode. But I've seen some people say like, nothing happens. It's 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 filler. And uh, I guess my response to that is like, I think you have to look at it more from a thematic standpoint, because this is a conversation about love. Because ultimately, that's what this show is about, is a conversation about love. So through the story, we're speaking to those themes. And Joel makes a life-altering decision, which is to take Ellie on. So from that standpoint, a lot happens in this episode. Something fundamental happens in this episode.
2: I think we see several different representations of this, whether it's Joel Sarah, Joel Tommy, Joel Ellie, Bill Frank, Henry Sam, Marlene and Ellie's mom.
0: I guess Bill and Frank were lucky in a way that they got to settle down. And when, if you compare them to Henry and Sam, they're just on the go. Um, so for the, for the most part, it's just the panic of being afraid for the one you are guarding. Uh, and, you know, for Henry, it's obviously Sam. And then we get these moments of reprieve, these moments of beauty, these moments of laughter. And I think there's something about coming off of the Bill and Frank episode and knowing, again, what you gain, what you stand to win, and then seeing just those mo- those moments of levity between Henry and Sam, or like Sam and Ellie giggling or playing soccer, um, that there's a part of your brain that like fools you and is like, Maybe they could make it. Maybe they could get it out. And it's like, that's what you're fighting for. But also, what you stand to lose is um, experiencing the worst pain possible, which is seeing the ones you love suffer. And in the case of Henry and Sam, it was too overwhelming for Henry to keep going.
2: To follow that thread a little bit for a character that I don't think is getting all the write-ups the way so many of the other characters are. And it's in episode four after um, Joel and Ellie are ambushed and they run into the laundromat and there's the gunfire, the fight, and then a character who later we learn is named Brian gets the jump on Joel and comes in through the side door of the laundromat, chokes him out, Joel's dying. Ellie comes in, (laughs) saves the day. And we see the switch in Brian's character from being on top of Joel and strangling him and cursing him out, you know, I'm gonna kill you, all these things. And then after he's wounded, the switch that's flipped of him talking to Ellie.
1: No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. It's over, we're
2: not fighting anymore. We can trade with you guys. We could be friends. I didn't know. I'm Brian. I'm Brian. What's your name? And then Joel's like Ellie. You know, go, go back away again or whatever. Get back behind the wall.
1: No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please, please. We could just talk. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
2: And Bella's performance in that moment. And then we hear the character Brian going like, "Mom, mom, calling for mom."
0: You know, when we're making the game, initially Ellie didn't kill anybody until the very end of the story. And as we're just crafting it and creating these setups of like where you have to fight enough people to get used to the mechanics so you have this like instinctual connection with Joel. But if Ellie's not engaged in the fighting, which is the main loop of what you're doing in the game, you start forgetting about her and she doesn't feel meaningful in the interactive side of things. So that's where... We said, okay, so that means that Ellie needs to be engaged. That means she has committed violence or she'll have to commit enough where I can't phase her as much. That means the ending of that story we had where she like shoots someone to save Joel at the end just doesn't work anymore. We have to rethink the story. And this kind of worked in the reverse of to say, okay, we're, we're removing a lot of the violence from this story because we don't need it for mastery of mechanics That means that we could have instances like the one you described when we enter Kansas City where we kill someone and you feel the weight of violence against another human being, that they could go from being this really tough individual to pleading and crying like a child. Um, And that even though Ellie wants to be as tough as Joel and wants to be cold as him, she's not. She's not Joel. And it's right it, it gets to her emotionally, and then she starts um, uh, psychologically, she's beating herself up. And you can see it when she's walking away, she's upset with herself more so than the situation. Sometimes we're just cruel to our characters that we love so much <laughs> to see who they really are. that's that's the way to kind of just pull out their true character out of them is to put them in these really tough scenarios.
2: One of the changes that struck me is, and I think this is again a a potentially broad concept, is the idea of Tommy perhaps as Joel's, not inciting incident, but kind of reason to leave the QZ at the outset. Whereas in the game, I believe it was more, well, Tess is dead. I don't have anywhere to go with this kid. My brother used to be a firefly. It's as good as a place as any.
0: I think that turned out to be a really smart change in that in the game, you get so much I'll call it pacing currency of like you're seeing new stuff and that's keeping your interest that even if you are you don't quite know what your character's goal is, or if the goal might be minor, you're okay with it because you're still learning mechanics. You're like getting to meet Tess. Okay, what is this quarantine zone? And I don't think you get that same interest in a TV show when you're not swinging the camera around yourself and kind of exploring the details. So to captivate people, I think we needed a stronger motivation from Joel that you would be rooting for. Like, what do I want him to succeed at? Until we get to the main goal, which is Ellie. But eventually got back to like, okay, what drives Joel, which is protecting the ones he loves? I think without it, he falls apart. He has nothing. So to say, okay, once Sarah's gone, well, the only person he has left is Tommy. That's his immediate family. So to say even once they've had a falling out and Tommy left a QZ, Joel still kept tabs on him. And then how does Joel freak out when he stops hearing from Tommy? It's like, that's his worst fear is losing his tribe, losing the people close to him and failing again. So that, that became a really strong motivation to get us to that next step of like, okay, take on the job to smuggle a person, this being Ellie, even though he doesn't want to. And then we're like, okay, we got him further. And this was very similar math to what we did in the game once we got outside the walls. It was like, okay, then we need him to go further. Well, that's going to be Tessa's dying wish. That, that gets him to commit further. And then the experience with Bill, which is, is different, quite different from the game, but um, ultimately serves a similar purpose. By the end of the Bill sequence in the game, Joel has learned to trust Ellie um, and rely on her and he looks at her differently. And by the end of the Bill sequence in the show, he reads this note from Bill describing the kind of people he and Bill are.
1: I used to hate the world and I was happy when everyone died, but I was wrong because there was one person worth saving. That's what I did, I saved him.
0: And they're protectors.
1: Then I protected him.
0: And they are put on this earth to protect the people they love.
1: We have a job to do. And God help any motherfuckers who stand in our way.
0: That causes Joel to change and take on Ellie now the rest of the way. Uh, and that's where like the, the, the two stories converge at that point, um, at least for a little while as we move forward.
2: The decision to leave Jackson in the show I thought was almost as heart-wrenching as any, where Ellie felt, in my opinion, hell-bent to do this thing, but felt so betrayed by the person she had put so much care into. Listen, uh, Why are you here? I came here to talk to you.
1: No, why are you still here? If you're gonna ditch me, ditch me. I made this decision for your own good. You'll be way better off with Tommy. He knows the area better than I do. Do you give a shit about me or not? Of course I do. Then what are you so afraid of? I'm sorry about your daughter, Joel. But I have lost people too. You have no idea what loss is. Everybody I have cared for has either died or left me. Everybody fucking except for you! So don't tell me that I'd be safe with somebody else because the truth is I would just be more scared.
0: You know, part of our process of wanting to pull more out of our characters, again, sometimes means putting them in tougher situations. And it's just interesting how some of these ideas kind of like go in cycles where like you have an idea and then it doesn't work and then later it works again. And Tommy having a kid is one of those ideas that were in early pitches for the game. And then for just um, because we never made it into Jackson, it just didn't fit anymore and it was taken out for logistical reasons. But now it felt oh, there's something interesting happening here, which is like, what an awkward situation for these two brothers to be in because they both experienced this incredible loss of when they lost Sarah because, you know, in in a lot of ways, Tommy was playing a father to her as well. But now Tommy gets to move on in a way that Joel doesn't. And it just became like rife for exploration of like, you just feel Joel's loss. And it's like, it's, it's a weird jealousy in a way of like that his younger brother gets t- to have this thing that he doesn't. So I really kind of enjoyed the the back and forth that we could have with the brothers. So then you think about um, some of the other relationships uh, The Marlene and Anna is kind of interesting because that's when we get into the philosophy of um, do the ends justify the means? Of she loved Anna deeply and made a promise to look after her kid. But Marlene views the world differently than Joel. She's kind of polar opposite, where Joel's humanity is very narrow, and it's just the people closest to him. Marlene is actually, like the Fireflies, is very broad, which is accepting sacrifices to help the greater good of the rest of humanity. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong but it's fascinating to pit them against each other. Uh, I think that's what, for me, interesting storytelling does. It's like, on different days, I might side with Marlene versus Joel. Although I mostly side with Joel. <laughs> we,
2: we mentioned um, Ashley's character. I love the idea of Ashley giving birth to the character of Ellie in the game by bringing her to life as, as the character in the game. And then literally giving birth to the character in the show and doing it in such a bittersweet moment and setting where it's not how you picture the joyous occasion of childbirth. She is on the run and kind of maybe hung out to dry. I think, you know, there's an idea at least that she was expecting help or someone else to be there along the way. And then the help she ultimately gets is... I would argue to some extent, similar to Bill and Frank, where she asks Marlene in no uncertain terms, "You know, love me the way I want you to. Dang it, you know, like <laughs> don't don't leave me here like this." While also probably lying to Marlene about right when she was bit. I
0: and, mean, she she definitely lied to Marlene about when she was bitten. Yeah, in order to, uh, which is a foreshadowing of later what Joel does um, when he has that final conversation with Ellie, which is like sometimes to protect your kid, you're going to do anything in your power, including lying. And so that kind of like story is is almost um, a micro version of the entire journey of like here's a parent trying to protect their kid, trying to do whatever it takes to protect their kid and finding some calm knowing that their kid is going to be okay even once they leave and the acceptance of that.
2: Is there more story that you have in your head about what was happening with the Fireflies in that moment? Yeah. uh, Well,
0: I think at that point, it was more of a freedom fighter rebel group um, that was operating within the Boston QZ. Um, Obviously, Anna and Marlene have known each other for a long time, but have gotten separated. And through um, some sort of communication, Marlene was going to smuggle her into the quarantine zone, which is kind of the opposite of what happens later, where she has to smuggle Ellie out of the quarantine zone. And then they got held up, and mistakes happen in this world, and Anna was bitten. And now Marlene has to kill her best friend and try to protect her best friend's child until she's faced with this impossible Sophie's choice of, like, do I save my best friend's kid or the rest of humanity? And she answers that question slightly differently than how Joel answers that question.
2: We talked about Ashley. I want to talk a little bit about Troy. Um, Aside from stealing my job as an excellent podcast host of The Last of Us podcast. Come on, Troy. You have so much. (laughs) Leave some for the rest of us. Um, Man, he sure is an asshole in this show. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's maybe a a bad group of folks that he's a part of, but they're all trying to make it. Um, It was so fun for me to see him in this role as this enforcer character. So we had obviously Troy Baker come and play James, which is
0: David's right hand man. But we had Jeffrey Pierce, who played Tommy in the in the video game, come in and he plays um, Kathleen's right hand man. Yes. So you can kind of like look at these two characters and so much of, of of again the structure of this season is just these mirror reflections and then looking at the differences. Whereas like. Jeffrey's character, Perry, even though Kathleen has lost it a little bit, right? She's just so hell-bent on justice. He still commits to her and, and like, believes in her. Whereas Troy's character, James, is starting to doubt. And David is feeling it, which is why one of their first earlier scenes together is, like, he's telling him, like, I'm sensing doubt in you. And even though James tries to reassure him, you get the sense that maybe James is not quite buying into what this guy's about.
1: James. Yeah. I sensed doubt in there. They haven't lost faith in you, David. They're just scared. Not from them. I still believe. It's been, uh, the last six months have been hard. For all of us. But I need to know you're with me. Yeah. Good.
0: What's also interesting for for Troy, and it's just kind of a trip for me to watch, is in the game, Joel experienced pretty much everything Ellie experiences, except for this area where she fights David. Like, Joel never meets David or James. He never gets there. And now we have Troy in the part that he wasn't in at all in the game. So now he has, like, the full experience of The Last of Us. There's just uh, something really kind of poetic about that that I, I enjoyed.
2: Let's kind of zoom toward the end of the season some and the revelation of Joel's scar, which we hear about a lot throughout the season. Ellie points out that Joel's deaf, and Joel says it's from shooting and not from being shot at. It was doing the shooting. And then we have this moment of the two sitting down and we learn the truth of the scar and the story of Joel attempting to take his own life after Sarah's passing. Sarah died, and I couldn't see the point anymore. went to pull the trigger. I I flinched.
1: Still don't know why. I'm glad that that didn't work out. Me too.
0: Yeah, this conversation is so beautiful, and it replaces what's in the game as an equally beautiful part where Ellie shows Joel, I stole the picture of you and Sarah. And there's an opening up of vulnerability. And that's where Joel starts talking about Sarah. And that, that eventually led to this moment where he's telling her a little bit about the next day and what, what went down and Sarah was already gone. And he had nothing to live for. Um, and he wanted to just exit in, I guess, the same way we saw Henry exit a few episodes back. And for some reason, he couldn't do it. He flinched. He was scared. He doesn't even know. He can't even explain it. And that, that exchange is so beautiful between the two of them. And then when he says, uh, or Ellie says, I'm, I'm glad that didn't work out. Uh, and you just see how far these two have come and how much they're committed to each other and how open they are with each other. Where it, if you go back and watch their first couple episodes, how closed off they've been.
2: As our time winds to an end and as the season wound to an end, I'd be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to ask about season two, hopes, dreams, wishes, desires. But I think more interesting for me, fears and and kind of where you are now going into season two. (laughs) You've created a monster. You've created a really popular thing. What, I mean... (laughs) anything you can share about what's coming next
0: well i guess maybe that's that's one of the biggest where my uh going back to the beginning of this conversation where sometimes success leads to stress and anxiety and the reason is when we we're making the first the last of us game back that released back in 2013 mm-hmm. we had done uncharted so there was some pressure of like wanting to see what naughty dog does next because uncharted especially uncharted 2 was really successful but then when people saw the first trailer, they were like intrigued, but it was like, ah, it's a zombie story. It's like, we're flying under the radar. No one knew what we were making. And then they are pleasantly surprised and the game did much better than anyone anticipated. And then for the most part, with some exceptions, I have to say that, <laughs> uh, video game adaptations have been poor, especially serious live action ones. So I think because of that, expectations were low for the show and... The show delivered, for the most part, very well and exceeded those expectations across the board. Now expectations are high, which is kind of the position we're in for part two. And for those that have played part two, they know this is not your traditional sequel of where the story would normally go in a big franchise such as this. However, I don't have those fears of like, are people going to like it or not like it Um it's more, I want to replicate the process. And this is the same, again. Like, when we made part two, it was important for me not to replicate moments, but replicate process. We're, we're not looking for like, who is our David this time? Or who is our Joel? Or who is, what's the, the replacement of the giraffe sequence? But the process is important like to say, do we have this core, this theme that we could hang all these subplots on? Um is there a through line? Is there a strong ending that makes a really strong statement that we could kind of like race towards as as the journey kind of like builds in momentum? And now we've gone through a process of adaptation of like what are the parts that we keep that are the same? What are the parts that we are willing to devi- deviate um, in small ways? and what are the parts that we are willing to deviate in really great, significant ways as we go from one medium to another. And I guess maybe the thing I'm always scared of is oh, we're going to make something I am not proud of that I wouldn't feel like I could stand 100% behind. But I feel confident that as long as we keep an open mind, stay true to the process, um, that we will arrive in that that same place. And now it's it's another version of that story that I'm excited to retell with uh, Craig Mason and all of our partners at HBO. Naughty Dog, and PlayStation.
2: It's such a beautiful thing, my friend. Um, I mean, you know we've talked about the games a bunch and how I think they're such a beautiful thing, And th- but this show is such a triumph, and what you all have pulled off and, and the, the teams um, working on this show is just extraordinary, and it's so awesome to see it.
0: It's so, again, it's going back to that, that the strangeness of it is like now week to week people are talking about these characters and dissect, dissecting their psychology and arguing whether like they've done the right or the wrong thing. What a joy. How awesome is it um, to be in this moment right now and get to experience it and get to relive this adventure with these characters again, you know, on on the creator side, Um, but also just get to do it with the fans as well. And that's why I love going on, you know, sometimes these platforms can be quite toxic, but like Reddit and Twitter and reading articles and, I'm just there with the fans because I love the material just as much as they do. I love to like see it and experience it along with creating it.
2: I'll say it every time. Thank you. Um, I really enjoy these conversations and I I love the work that you put out. I love to to show you and Craig and Troy are doing. Um, And I love that we're able to hopefully shed new light. I think this conversation hopefully does some of that. Um, And it's just been super fun for me. So thank you.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. And I really appreciate the conversation, as you could tell. I love talking about this stuff, these characters, this world. And um, I, I don't take it for granted of how many people listen to this and get something out of this and get some just, a, whether it's more clarity or more about the creative process. Um, I know I enjoy when creators I really admire to do this stuff. So that's one of the reasons I love doing it as well.
1: But if you just keep going, you find something new to fight for. Now, maybe that's not what you want. Swear to me. Swear to me that everything you said about the fireflies is true. I swear. Okay.
2: You can stream The Last of Us on HBO Max and subscribe to the audio companion, HBO's The Last of Us podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The official The Last of Us podcast is hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and produced by HBO and Spoke Media. Special thanks to Neil Druckmann for taking the time to talk with us. This episode was produced by Carson McCain and Kelly Kolf and written by Brigham Mosley. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, who contributed additional sound design and music. Executive producers for Spoke Media are Elia Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. As always, thanks for listening.